Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening, I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning radio broadcast in our 17th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Now, support for WFHB comes from listeners like you and Community Voices for Health in Monroe County, who invite you to participate in Your Voices, Our Future, transforming community health decisions making via Zoom on Thursday, October the 14th from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. And this will be an evening of discussion and deliberation about health issues, ideas, and solutions among community members and decision makers in Monroe County. Registration information is available through eventbrite.com by searching for Community Voices, Monroe County. Good evening. I'm Vernon Williams, and I'm joining Clarence Boone as a co-host. There are four powerful playwrights in the studio today who represent five plays that will be staged as part of Onyx Fest 2021, which begins October 17th and continues through October 16th. These five original plays have never been produced. They're one-act plays all by Indianapolis Black playwrights. That will be premiering in central Indiana during the festival, which begins Thursday. Well, Vernon wears many hats, uh, along with being on our show multiple times to talk about such things as, um, oh, you name it, everything from IUPUI pursuits to um, events going on through the summer in Indianapolis. He is director of the ARTI, which is the Africana Repertory Theater of Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, or IUPUI. And he is a communication and community strategist at IUPUI. Now, tonight he is joined by those uh, writers and directors who will be showcasing their craft during this year's Onyx Specs. And Vernon, will you please introduce them? Absolutely. And just, uh, I'm on the um, uh, executive committee of Artie, but I'm director of Onyx Fest, okay? So I just wanted to make sure I got that straight. <laughs> uh, the um, directors who are joining us this evening are Janice Morris Neal who wrote a, an incredible play called That Day in February, and I'll let her uh, explain to you the dynamics of that play and how it was inspired. Then a young man who has come up with his first play, and his first play is a very, very intriguing tale called Ransom Place, Jamil Martin. Um, we have Charlotte Booth, who's a veteran in theater and has written numerous plays for children, but this is her first foray into the field of plays for adults, and she's a veteran director and, and has other uh, experience in the, in the craft. Um, her play is This Bitter Cup. And then Fly Blackbird Fly Voices We Can't Unhear. If you remember the choreo poem uh, for color girls who consider suicide when the rainbow was enough, this play is along that general line, only better. It's by a young lady named Ms. Latrice Young. And I want to point this out, Clarence, since you happen to be blessed with being from Gary, the 219 area code. Uh, two of these uh, four playwrights on the show this evening are from Gary, Indiana. How about that? You know, I, I knew there was something special. There was a glow 
yeah. about these individuals. And now I know what it is. And let me also mention, there's a play, a wonderful production by a young lady named Crystal V. Rose. Uh, her play is being directed by uh, Deborah Asante of the Asante Children's Theater. It's called uh, 1200 miles from Jerome. Uh, she's in her final rehearsal tonight. Couldn't be with us, but uh, that's the fifth play. And with that, we have a, a stellar lineup that could compare to any theater festival anywhere. Um, so we, you have a great group of, of creative people with you on the program today, Clarence. Okay, before we get involved and forget, where will this be held? How much to see all of this? And if you could just review that real quickly. Yeah, Onyx Fest is split between the Basile Theater at Indy Fringe, which is on St. Clair, um, the District Theater on Mass, Massachusetts Avenue, and the Campus Theater, um, which is a part of the Campus Center on the campus of IUPUI in Indianapolis. So the first week of productions will be between the District and Indy Fringe. The second week will be all at IUPUI. Tickets are only $15 because we want to make this very affordable. These are productions that the entire family can enjoy. So we want people to bring their children um, to become, get, become getting them oriented into appreciating theater, which is part of why it already exists. So the prices are very reasonable. And to purchase a ticket, all you have to do is go to onyxfest.com, O-N-Y-X-F-E-S-T, one word, dot com. Well, I, I like to hear from, from each of our stellar uh, uh, participants tonight. And we'll start off with Latrice, if you'll share with us uh, a little bit about your production, the inspiration behind it, and, and what you're hoping to convey to the audience that uh, will come and experience this. Yes, thank you. So again, my play is Fly, Blackbird, Fly, Voices We Can't Unhear in the form of a choreo poem. Um, and this play is actually, there's a full length version, but for Onyx Fest, we've as best as we could, <laughs> trimmed it down to 60 minutes. So it originally has seven um, female characters that you follow, black female characters that you will follow their journeys. Um, but for the sake of Onyx Fest, we are down to five um, black female characters that you'll follow trauma basically all the way up from the time that we are born. Um, what that's like for black women, black babies, black children, black girls, um, exploring girlhood, womanhood, sisterhood, um, and everything that comes with that. And because I'm the type of person, I don't like to end on negative notes or bad notes. Um, and I don't want people leaving depressed. Also, um, it, it gives you a sense of hope at the end and we bring them from trauma to healing through the form of choreo poetry. And as I stated from uh, birth, childhood, girlhood, womanhood, sisterhood, and therapy being the main source of that healing, how that comes about. Um, and so for audience members, I really want them to, and I keep saying it, relax, relate, and release. It's one of the main things that I've forced, and I will say that forced my cast members to do, um, because as much as I wanted it to be about the characters, I was very particular about who I chose um, in the play. I kind of stalked some people online, saw things that they posted, saw what they needed, and chose them accordingly. And so it's a it's been a unique experience working with them, to say the least, um, but each of them are now, I believe, ready to fly. And you'll understand what, why I say that if you come and see the play. Ms. Latrice, um, first of all, congratulations on the one of the best oxymorons I've heard recently, forced <laughs> relaxation. But uh, past that, um, are these stories inspired by real life people that you've come in contact with, your own experience, your imagination, or a combination? 
it's definitely a combination of all of that. So majority is based on stories um, that have been shared with me over the years um, from young women, older women. And, and I forgot to say that this play is intergenerational um, and, and doing so on purpose again. Um, part of it, some things in here were personal to me. Um, and most of the poems that you'll hear started from the age of um, like seven. Um, or the thoughts of it started from the age that I was seven. And then one of the oldest plays was what I wrote when I was, or oldest poems that I wrote was when I was 15. Um, and so th these are poems that have just been created over time. And I was able to create this choreo poem, molded them, and that's where my imagination came in, how to mold them to make them fit for the context of this play. Let me ask you this. What inspired you to go into the performing arts period? And what mm -hmm. specifically brought you to become a playwright? Performing arts, I would say it was just in my DNA. And I know that's the cliche response to say, but um, from the time that I was a young girl, I was always in something, whether it was sports or it was academic clubs or performing. However, I was very nervous and shy back then. It wasn't until I was about 15 or 16, which is where that first, the oldest poem in Fly Blackbird Fly came from, uh, where I joined uh, the Poetry Slam team at Emerson Visual Performing Arts and High Ability Academy is what it ended up becoming um, in Gary, Indiana. Um, and so I think it was one of those things that brought me my therapy, the performing arts field, um, coming from a single parent household, coming from impoverished communities, impoverished neighborhoods, um, and just a lot of personal stuff that I was dealing with growing up. The performing arts gave me an outlet to express myself, to jump into other worlds that went beyond mine. Um, and I found answers to questions that I had had and answers to prayers that I'd also had in the performing arts. And so that's what also prompted me to then cre start creating my own as well, especially this play. Um, and what was your second question? It was, how did I get into performing arts in general? And then I think you asked something else. Aspect of it specifically. Oh, right, so I'm a poet. Uh, that's what I normally go by storyteller at heart. Um, and I was trying to go to grad school. I realized I did not want to go only into creative writing poetry. And I also realized I didn't want to go only into acting. Um, and so I was like, how do I combine the two of these things that I love so much while I was at Purdue, I got to you know, be a part of singing groups, dancing groups, acting, um, spoken word. And so it's was like, I wanna keep doing this, um, but study more and have specific topics that I'm researching and do that for grad school. And I didn't necessarily find that program um, but I did find Ntozaki Shange's for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow was enough. And I was like, this is what I want to study. This is what I want to do. And this is the type of work that I already have been doing. I just didn't have a word for it. Um, and so that's where this uh, play came about because I was like, well, maybe I should be going into playwriting because it's technically a play. And mm -hmm. so I had to have a play. At that point, I did not have a play written. I'd only had poems. Um, and so that's, it came together in like less than six months, um, where I just went into my, you know, arsenal and picked up what I could and, and tied things together. This is now the third version of, um, this play with a whole different title and different characters and everything. But yeah, that's where my playwriting, um, start, got started. And that was about, what is it? That was 28, 2017. Okay. We'll come back to you. Uh, Janice Morris Neal. Before we, before we move on to, to, uh, to Janice, I, I did have a follow-up for Latrice because I know that she may have to exit uh, shortly, but uh, your, your plays, what you're describing speaks towards that, um, that trauma, that syndrome called ACE, Adverse Childhood Experiences. And I'm just curious, were you attempting to, as you said, provide some healing and do some therapy in this play? Um, can you speak toward that and how do you see this as an outlet to help those who are sitting there viewing this that have experienced ACEs? 
Yep. Um, so starting, like I said, with my cast, them having gone through pretty much what their characters are saying, literally for some of them, exactly what they're saying they have experienced in their lives. Um, and I think especially with Black women, we are forced to just push through and just keep going. And then in the Black community in general, when you think about therapy as such a taboo subject or seeking help outside of the church, that just gets, you know, oof, complicated. And so with this play and just all of my writing, what I attempt to do is I don't want to give you an answer. You know, I, I don't want to do that, but I do prompt questions. And so I think when you're watching and viewers and the, the cast members themselves, when you listen to the words, you're either A, relating directly to what they're saying because you experienced it, or B, you begin to think how many other women have gone through this? Or another thing is um, that I'm trying to provide is looking at people from a humane perspective. That's the basis, humanity. <laughs> As I, as I listen to this further, Vernon, it, it screams at me something that you crafted years ago that we had the pleasure of presenting to others, and that's uh, sonnets for my sisters. And it sort of falls along that same uh, uh, path of trying to at least bring awareness and raise awareness and hopefully start and create a dialogue. And yeah. one of the hopeful things was having people talk after they experienced this, after they experienced this, and and who knows where that may lead. And so, Vernon, if you could follow up on that and then introduce our next uh uh, okay. Well, uh, absolutely. There, it is akin to Sonnets for My Sisters, which is that same kind of caring outreach. And it is done largely in porn. And uh, one of the directors on the uh, line with us right now was very instrumental in the staging of that production. As a matter of fact, was the uh, inaugural director for Sonnets for My Sisters. And that's Charla Booth. And we'll get to uh, her later. But uh, Janice morris Neal. Um, tell us about your play. Uh, how, did, how did this story come about? Okay, um, I am directing that day in February, which actually is a uh, in 2005, February of 2005, um, just a really traumatic um, and sad thing happened um, in my uh, uh, my friend circle. There was a um, a murder suicide, um, and so I wanted to tell that story uh, from the perspective of because at the time that the that this uh, trauma happened, they the couple had small children. And so I wanted to tell the story from the perspective of the adult children. And so that's what that day in February is about. Each of them experienced the same thing, um, but each of them dealt with it differently. Um, and so my story, uh, ironically, um, the same way that Ms. Latrice's is really about dealing with tr uh, this childhood trauma, this adverse uh, childhood um, experiences that um, you talked about, Mr. Boone. So um, that's really what it's about. It, it, it's from three different perspectives. They each see things very differently. And it's about whether or not you can, um, you know, your conclusion is not determining whether it's right or wrong, but um, just allowing it to be just that. And it's about forgiveness or not. Um, and uh, so that's, that's really is it was inspired by a true events, but not the retelling of this story, but inspired by. I see so, this as helping the community. I see this as perhaps creating dialogues. I can't help living in Bloomington and my heart goes out to Indianapolis every time I look at the news in the mornings, I see what's gone on the night before. And now there are records that are being broken, uh, unfortunately yeah. this year when it comes to violence. And hopefully people will realize and come out and support what you're doing because it sort of speaks to the catalyst behind some of this violence and how dialogue and understanding can lead towards better understanding. And I didn't mean to cut you off, Ronnie. go ahead. No, I was just going to um, comment that one of the elements that people don't seem to realize fully is how 
when crimes are committed against uh, uh, people, particularly uh, homicides, um, rapes, and, and even home invasions and burglaries and robberies, how it impacts not just the victim who happened to be the one who was uh, assailed, but so many people in their lives, uh, their relatives, their friends. Speak to that, Janice. Oh, absolutely. Um, I think um, there were um, so many people, this ripple effect of, of this particular incident, um, so many friends, um, so much um, personal guilt around, you know, if you could have done more, if we had been there, you know, we didn't see it coming. So a lot of that, um, but just to try to embrace uh, what was going on with these children to now have to grow up um, without either of their parents. Um, and because I knew them uh, from a friend perspective, I think you can sometimes introduce uh, children to their parents uh, in a different way. Um, and so um, it was, it, it was, um, therapeutic to write this piece. I think I hadn't really dealt with it um, for a long time. Um, so to write it was was uh, some therapy for me. Um, and um, there's still so many things to unpack. Like you said, so many layers and, and um, so much trauma and then so much healing as well. So that's what Absolutely. we're headed towards. It's a healing yeah. piece of this. The next play is written by a young lady named Charlie Booth. It's called This Bitter Cup. And um, Charla, explain that title and the play itself. Right, this bitter cup was actually a phrase that I first heard used in the church. Um, it does have biblical references. Um, and so I was trying to find a way to send a lot of messages to the people in the audience, the parents especially, without being preachy. And so um, I am a big fan of Afrocentric historical research. And so I don't know if you know anything about Mississippi back in 19, early 50s, but they literally had lynchings up until 1950. And so my play is set in 1953. Um, it is the story of a black family who has become successful first generation out of slavery. The father has been able to open up a small hardware store in the colored section of town, which was almost unheard of in that little town. Now, if you think about the 1950s and other places up north, larger cities, um, they're getting ready to go into some real civil rights movements and activities and things are progressing for black people. But back in those little Southern country towns, things weren't moving quite as quickly. So there was a dichotomy of two different worlds existing at the same time. And so in my family, I have a father who is so proud that he has created um, what can become a legacy for his children so that they can actually have something to sustain them. He has an adult son who wants no part of it. He wants to go away to college. He wants to move up north. He wants to become a part of the movement um, that is happening. You also have a daughter who is sweet. Um, typically back then, the young girls were married off, expected to be barefoot pregnant, raise their families, kind of quiet. But in other parts of the United States, women were starting to take a more active role. And so here you have a woman who is black in the South, who's also ready to move forward, but she has these limitations as well. So you have lots of different things happening at the same time within the family. Um, add to that the racial overtones. The best friend of the son has become enamored with the daughter and is interested in courting her, asking the father for permission. However, his grandfather was a slave owner, a white man, um, who had impregnated his grandmother and 
the family father seems to want no part of that. And so throughout the play, you are led to believe that it is because this young man has white blood that the father doesn't want him in the family. So of course, we take you all the way to the end of the play where there's a twist, always. And I have engaged a storyteller who takes you through the end of the play. She actually has a 10 minute monologue and she tells the story of this family's past. And so it's just a lot of different types of theater I was able to put together to create one single 12 hour period in the life of this family. But so much happens in that one day that everyone in the family's lives are changed forever. Um, this is an experimental theater piece for me because it is a nonstop conversation. I mentioned it to Mr. Boone earlier. There was a movie called My Dinner with Andre several years ago, and the entire movie was filmed at a dinner table. It was just conversations. They didn't get up and walk to the bar. They didn't go to the terrace. They just sat and talked. And so my play is one continuous conversation. People walk in on it and overhear what's being said and join in. People leave out of it, but the conversation never stops. So from the beginning of the play to the end, this dialogue has to move the entire story forward. So it's a little different. It's kind of risky, but I really think my audiences um, will like it. They'll be engaged. Well, and you do have a lot of uh, people who migrated to this part of the country from Mississippi, including my family and I. <laughs> I grew up a portion of my childhood in Pascagoula, Mississippi, so I can relate. And unfortunately, those lynchings continued well into the 20th century. Uh, that's an intriguing story that I think will connect with a lot of people. What do you hope will be the takeaway as people leave the theater ha having seen this bitter cup? So what I want them to take away from it is that um, everybody goes through. You know, the Bible said, uh, never said that, we wouldn't have a tax. It just said that they would not prosper. And so no matter where you are in your life, you're gonna have challenges. There are going to be parts of your life that are ugly, that could cause you to become bitter if that is the way you perceived it and decided to carry that out. But I'm a believer that through faith and spirituality that God has purposed us for something greater and that these challenges are things we have to go through to get to where he wants us to be. And so what I want them to take away from it is that no matter how bitter those lemons taste, if you eat them alone, you are responsible for figuring out what you can add to them to make them sweeter so that your cup is not so bitter. Uh, Charlie, you use a comparison uh, in the Bible as far as a cup, and that cup has been symbolic of a lot of things, experiences, but one must go through drinking this bitter cup. Uh, and, and Vernon, you, you hit on just what I was going to talk about as far as your family ties to Mississippi, and which means that when you were young growing up, there were conversations about life in Mississippi. And no doubt you may have, depending on when you migrated north or came up north, you may have witnessed some yeah. of the things. My, my, my in-laws, uh, and I, I hate that word in-laws, but my, my extended family from Mississippi. And uh, the things that I was told that my, my father-in-law endured, I, I imagine after viewing your play, families may sit down, perhaps been a long time not, have, not having sat down and talk about what defines our family. Why is our family so resilient? And how did these things make us better, but not kill us? The play is intended to be a kind of a therapeutic conversation starter. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
on Sunday's performance on the 10th at four o'clock at the Basile, um, I have the Jack and Jill organization coming. They're bringing 16 teenagers and we're even gonna do a 30 minute talk back before the show. Um, and I am really hoping that it does incite conversation between teenagers and their parents um, and to help prosper the relationship between them and their own parents. Thank you for that. We save um, the gen we let the ladies precede the gen uh, but Jamil has a wonderful play that he's put together called Ransom Place. And Jamil, first of all, describe the story behind this play and then the inspiration. Uh, thank you, Vernon. Uh, the story is pretty simple in a lot of ways. It's just a story about two guys um, <clears throat> waiting, waiting it out. They're just in a building that's, uh, that's crumbling in a neighborhood that's been falling apart for many years and they've refused to leave. Um, in a sense, they're holding, they're holding themselves ransom or they're holding the significance that the, the community and, their, and the history and their memory of what the place used to be, they're holding that memory ransom. Uh, they're just holding on to this thing. So in a sense, it's about, it's about two people waiting. <laughs> I mean, not really going anywhere. Um, and the inspiration for it, I guess, it, it proceeded from, from one question after the next question after the next question. It was, it was one of these things where I, as, as you mentioned earlier, this is the first play that I've written, um, but I've seen a number of plays and, and one that made a, a lasting impression on me was uh, Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot. And one of the things about the play that, that I've kind of thought a lot about has been the setting. Um, and it's not just in this play. There's, I mean, most Beckett stories and, 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 and plays, the settings are kind of strange. But, you know, I was wondering in what other context this setting, this kind of post-apocalyptic or um, empty, this, this kind of, yeah, this kind of empty place, uh, where does that exist in real life? When I, when I read Beckett or when I've seen it on stage, it's always seemed like it's some kind of uh, warped reality. It's not like people are actually trying to depict how people live. But in my studying and reading of some of the history of Indiana even, uh, I had been working on some other stories. And in the, in the cases of the sort of mass displacement and gentrification uh, of the mid, to, mid early and mid 20th century in Indiana, I felt like there were an abundance of opportunities to explore that setting. And so it led me to, to think of, of, of uh, you know, this, this setting for these characters. And then you have to answer a bunch of questions like, well, what are they doing? You know, uh, if they're gonna stay there, why are they, why are they staying? And, and what, are they, what are they losing? What are they trying not to lose? Um, so it's an attempt really for me to answer a bunch of questions that I think are designed to get me closer to um, both, I guess, Beckett's writing and, and his imagination, but also my own history, people from Indiana who went through this and, you know. And is it somewhat of a contrast of perspectives like we both can look at the same object and because of our uh, demographics, whether it's age, gender, income, educational background, see two very different things in front of us, though it physically may be the same. Is that part of the intrigue of this play? 
Yes, I think, um, I think one of the other things is that you can't help but be hypnotized by the rhythm of a story that doesn't seem to progress anywhere. I mean, you have two options. One is you can buy into it, you know, or, or the other is you can think like, you know, this is ridiculous, I don't wanna pay attention to it. But if you buy into it even just a little bit, it's, it's almost impossible to resist the kind, of, the kind of rhythm that it has. And I think that juxtaposed with the fact that they don't wanna leave and that you've bought into this, into this setting puts you in a place where if they were to leave and you, and you, and you contemplate what it means for them to leave, you would also have to leave that entire world, that sort of imagine, you know, imagination of, of, uh, of just being in a place and of that having significance in and of itself. Talk about your experience in education and training uh, in the performing arts. Um, okay, I started in music, actually, um, playing viola, classical viola. I still play viola and that, I started when I was five in a program actually in Indianapolis called the Metropolitan Youth Orchestra of Indianapolis. And I did that all the way through high school until I got to an age where it was clear I had to start thinking about where I was gonna to go to school for college. Um, and I was very dedicated to classical music. Like I was 100% certain that's what I wanted to be, a violist and all these sorts of things. Um, and then I got an opportunity to go to New York to study at Juilliard's pre-college um, division. And so I moved that as a, as a high school student, as a senior. Um, and so I moved there, I did that. And then I went into Juilliard for college for undergrad. But almost immediately upon getting to Juilliard, I realized that writing either what, I mean, that, that music either wasn't enough or that something about me was, was, was being, I don't know, left behind. Like I wasn't able to, as an artist, express my full self. And I think that's actually a dilemma that a lot of classical musicians face, um, but specifically a lot of black, black American classical musicians. I mean, um, the majority of the repertoire is by, you know, white European men of several hundred years ago. So, okay. uh, yeah. Janice, I want to ask you the same question. Uh, what's, what's your... Uh, uh, pedigree in terms of the performing arts, theater, or any other aspect of, of, of um, the arts? Oh, I don't think that I have a really have a pedigree, but um, <laughs> I started out, um, actually, I'm a fiction writer. Um, and I actually got into playwriting because I wanted to turn one of my fiction novels into a play. Um, and so I just kind of started to look for people who uh, could help me do that and ran into the Indiana Writer Center. And from there, um, got into a critique group and started to write plays. And um, my vein really is, I love 10 minute pieces. So that's kind of where I feel like my, my main forte is it's in 10 minute playwriting. I like that. I've had a couple of pieces produced there. Um, and so this one act, um, like I said, I started to write this piece just um, because I wanted to get some things out of my mind and off my heart. Um, and so I'm really relatively new to playwriting. Um, so to be part of Onyx Fest is just, um, you know, it, it's, it's a really, it's a blessing. It's, it's just so exciting for me to come from an audience member sitting and watching playwrights last year to be actually able to present this year is, is so special. And, you know, um, I can't say thank you enough to everybody who's been part of this process. Um, but I really don't, um, you know, I didn't go into writing to write to, to be a playwright. I've always loved the theater. Um, I love all of these quirky little plays that have gone 
going on in Indiana for, you know, forever. So I've always been an audience member, but I, I, it was never an, uh, something that I aspired to do, but I'm glad I kind of took a chance. So, so it, it discovered you. It discovered me, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to jump in and uh, say that we've sort of passed the midway point of this conversation, but uh, for those that have just tuned in, I, I'd like to say that we've been having a conversation with Vernon Williams, who's, who is our guest co-anchor this evening. And uh, we are talking about, at the present, four powerful Black dramas that are coming to stage for Onyx Fest 2021. And it begins October 7th through October 16th. And these are five original, never produced, one-act plays, all by Indianapolis Black playwrights. And they'll be premiering their crafts on stage for the community. We've talked about uh, the passion behind their creativity. We've talked about uh, the content of what people will experience when they come out to see them. So we do encourage the audience, uh, if, if you're able, make a night of it. Come up to Indianapolis and see what's going on. You can learn more at onyxfest.com. And while we're also taking this break from the conversation, I will say that it is fun drive time at WFHB. And on that note, we'd like to encourage those who are listening and are, are enjoying the many things that Bring It On brings to you each and every week. Uh, we are a Black public affairs show, and we talk about topics of interest uh, emanating from South Central Indiana uh, for our listening publics. We are in our 17th year, and it's been a pleasure. But we need your support, and we come to you twice a year uh, at, from WFHB to talk about ways of giving support. And the key thing is, is that you are hearing local information which is live, and this is at the grassroots level. And we are all listener supported, so we don't have big endowments unless Vernon Williams wants to write a check and start an endowment. But nevertheless, we are a nonprofit. Uh, we bring to you news that is diverse. Uh, we talk about equity, we talk about community engagement, social justice, citizen journalism, environmental justice, and on and on and on. So we invite you to pick up that phone right now, 812-323-1200, and donate or you can donate safely and securely at wfhb.org. And just know that your support goes a long way to keeping us on the air and, and keeping programs like Bringing On coming to you. So again, that phone number is 812-323-1200, or you can go online at www.wfhb.org. And now back to a very stimulating conversation. We've heard about four productions that are coming, and now there's a fifth by by Miss Crystal Rhodes, and that's 1,200 miles from Jerome. From what you can share about that, Vernon, if you'll be so kind as to just give us sort of an overview of what uh, we might experience uh, from this particular play by Crystal Rhodes. Well, it's really a very um, uh, intriguing uh, drama about a family that's transporting um, a teenager who happens to be um, uh, uh, a member of the Japanese internment camp. He's a refugee from those internment camp uh, camps, and it's in the 1940s. And knowing the history of this nation, you know there was a time when, because of the war uh, with Japan, uh, Japanese Americans were taken to uh, camps, concentration camps, uh, for no, for lack of a better word. And uh, this uh, black family is trying to drive. Uh, from uh, Jerome, Mississippi, 1,200 miles um, to uh, the New England area um, with this young man in the car. And there are some experiences, uh, just as there would be today, of driving while Black that they may encounter along this perilous journey. So you can see uh, 
1,200 miles from Jerome by Crystal V. Rose is as exceptional a production as these other four fantastic plays that we're featuring on our conversation today. Um, I would like to move on. Uh, we spoke with everyone about their background in theater, except for uh, Charlotte Booth. Um, if you would, um, from your earliest recognition uh, uh, remembrances uh, through 2021, what would you say were the highlights of that somewhat storied uh, background in the performing arts? So I was that kid growing up in Gary, Indiana, who had the talent shows in their backyard all the time, and I got to be the MC. Um, I was fortunate. I grew up half a block from the Jackson family, Michael, Marlon, those kids, and uh, yeah, even at the age of seven, eight, nine, we would all be together in my backyard playing talent show. Um, at the age of nine, I became the first person in America granted permission by the bishop to dance in the Episcopal Church. We had a folklore service, and I've always um, wanted to express my spirituality through praise dance. And so I petitioned the church and was allowed to dance. From there, um, I just had a love of writing, a love of the arts. I went to an HBCU, I'm a Clark College graduate, uh, where I was a member of the forensic and debate team. I was on the dance team. And I also did a lot of things with the theater, but I never wanted to be an actress. I love the idea of being backstage. I love lighting and sound. And um, I became passionate about directing. When I graduated from Clark, I had come home to visit and they were auditioning teachers. They were going to open the first public performing arts school in the state of Indiana the one Ms. Latrice alluded to, the Emerson School for Visual and Performing Arts. And I auditioned and at the age of 21, I was teaching theater. And so I'm still um, a teacher this many years later. And that was 1982. Um, I have been very fortunate. I taught at Emerson for 25 years. And then I came to Indianapolis where I became the theater teacher and director at Broad Ripple Performing Arts Magnet, which has since closed. Um, but this is the first time that I'm not working exclusively with children in theater. Um, my cast are grown up and it's really exciting. It's a different kind of way to express because I have people that can process and think things through and are able to emote um, on a much higher, more mature level. And I absolutely love that. And so I use everything that I learned from my students when I was a teacher, because I've always learned from them um, to help enhance what I am able to do now. Uh, one of my cast members, Bianca Black, was actually one of my middle school theater students in Gary when she was in the sixth and seventh grade. And so just being able to see how the talent is able to grow and the craft among young people as they become adult professional actors. It's just very exciting to me. I've been able to sneak and peek and see some of the rehearsals and I am just awed at what the other directors are doing. I cannot wait to see their shows. Well, on, on that note, and I wanna talk about some of the dynamics that have gone into creating all of this, but all the world is waiting to hear this. Is the rumor true that you taught Michael Jackson how to moonwalk? Absolutely not. Okay. Okay. Well, we got beyond that, and and I always smile when I hear that uh, that you know we grew you know those that grew up. Vernon, you knew the Jackson family, and 
Charlie, you're in the back performing plays with the Jacksons and this, that, and the other. But uh, it just goes to show you, listening audience, what you can hear on Bring It On. So again, 812-323-1200, smile and dial right now. All right, let's talk about some of the dynamics of directing versus writing. Uh, and there, there's this sort of healthy tension, you might say, between director and writer. And before we went live this evening, um, you gave me an education as far as how some of these dynamics come to play. The, uh, the writer gives for lack of a better phrase, and everyone can sort of equate to this, you give birth to something, um, and then you hand it over to a, a director to give it more life. Let's talk about that healthy tension. And Charla, you began, before we went on this evening, describing what that might look like. So Charla, you're doing both in this particular production. You're both writing and directing. Um, but then, Janice, I want to talk to you about how you may hand this off to a director and what that feels like. So, Janice, let's start with you. Um, talk about that, please. Um, it was very, um, a little bit nerve-wracking um, because, like you said, you did give birth to this thing and you believe that it's this, this sweet baby that you can't, um, that can't be perfected anymore. You know, every parent thinks they have the cutest baby ever. Um, and so when I, I didn't know my director before we met um, and we just really, what was most important to me was that she kept the integrity of the piece, um, was that she was able to honor the legacy of where this came from. And once the, the two of us talked and she read the script, she said, oh, you know, I, I think I can absolutely do this. Um, and so there, like you talk about, there was a healthy tension there. So we've had to have a lot of dialogue. Um, you have to be, I think, really open. Um, and you can't be afraid, I think, as a playwright to say to the director, this doesn't work, or that piece doesn't work. That's not the intention of how that was written. Um, I've attended um, just um, rehearsals sporadically because I didn't want to influence too much uh, what the director was doing. But even when I went to rehearsals, I listened. Um, and I was able to say to them, um, the point that I wanted to get across with this piece of dialogue, I didn't hear, or I didn't um, get the absolute meaning of what you were saying here. So I was able to interject, I think, and because I was able to give them some insight into um, um, the writing, it helped, you know, just to make it a, a little bit richer in terms of the director. So. Now, Charla, can you piggyback on that? Uh, now you're doing both, but can you speak to that dynamic as well? Um, Actually, I was very selfish with this piece because I heard it in my head and I knew what I wanted to hear from the stage floor. And so before I sent the scripts to the cast, I actually recorded the entire play doing all of the character voices myself from beginning to end and sent them the audio and said, this is where you have to get to. And so our rehearsals have been a series of them trying to create the voices that I heard in my head, uh, which has been a challenge for them because of course, as actors, you wanna put yourself into the role. You want to become that person, to live it, to breathe it, to think as that person would and to express yourself as you believe they would. And so we have been able to come to a really healthy middle ground with all of the characters. I gave them some liberties and some freedoms to do some things that I had not even thought of with the character. And they have rescinded some of the things they wanted to do once I was able to explain to them why a line had to be said a certain way, a certain tone, there needed to be a certain rhythm. Um, and they have been able to, to buy into my vision. Uh, I'm a huge poetry fan. And so as I write lines for plays, I hear rhythms in my head. 
And there are even some lines, especially during the storytelling monologue, where it sounds like um, Mari Evans or Nikki Giovanni may have slipped the line of poetry in there. It flows so smoothly. And so they have to be able to break the storytelling rhythm to put that line in there and then get right back into the flow of the story. So it's a challenge. It's a challenge. But I love that um, I am able to do this myself and that what the audience will get is exactly what I wanted to get them. And Jamil, can you chime in with uh, your observations on this uh, healthy tension, if you will? Yeah, um, for me, there's not much of a tension. I actually, uh, and maybe this is be, this maybe this is a result of playing and studying a lot of classical music. Um, the interpretive process to me is, uh, is 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 just as rewarding in a way as the the generative process of writing something. So when I finish something and I give it to somebody else if they have a completely different idea, I mean, it can only be so different from what I might've intended originally. So that I remember actually, this was one of the things that helped me make casting decisions. I really valued when an actor delivered certain lines in ways that I never even considered, um, especially if it added something to the character that I might've overlooked. And I think it's very possible. I, in fact, I think it's impossible not to overlook for me some of the things that another person could bring to it. So um, when, when I finish working on something, writing something, uh, I don't have very strict feelings about it. In fact, if somebody comes and they say, can we cut this out and can we cut that out? And I, I listen to it, you know, I'm like, you know, exactly right. It needs to be, it needs to go, throw it away. You know, something like that, it doesn't matter to me. It's, it's, all, it's all being built for each individual performance. So, you know, it could be one night, one way, the next night, a different way, you know. That's interesting. That's interesting. And Bernie, I, I want to ask you a specific question as director of Onyx Fest. Um, and, and I want you to give me um, your views on this particular concept, worlds within worlds, and then how Onyx Fest and then also the Indie Fringe have this interplay and, and speak toward the history of both, if you will. Well, Onyx Fest has actually existed for 11 years. It was started by Indie Fringe under uh, the direction of several uh, people who were trying to expose Indianapolis to more Black plays uh, from the production standpoint, from the writing standpoint, and from the audience standpoint. And that's the work that now is being continued uh, by the Africana Repertory Theater of IUPUI, which last year partnered in production of this event, and this year is the sole producer, though Indie Friends remains involved because a large thrust of Artie is collaborative. So the organization is dedicated to bringing together theater from around the community. So even though we're the host of Onyx Fest, that collaborative spirit is still there. I might mention very briefly that we had our first community-wide Black theater reception at the Walker this past week, and it was incredible. We had people who, from throughout the community, uh, cross-generational, um, who, some who've been at it 50 years, some who've been at it five minutes, and the enthusiasm and vision and aspirations that they brought uh, to the conversation for uh, the hopes and dreams of Black theater in central Indiana and how it could be purposed for so many things, Clarence, from, from the, the spirituality of us as a people, from understanding through among all races, 
nurturing of our children to let them know who they are, some of the therapeutic kinds of cathartic experiences from theater, as you've heard some of the playwrights allude to, relational information, historical. Theater just has such a unique opportunity to frame stories about us that can only be told by us. When you tell stories by us, you get stories like Ransom Place and This Bitter Cup and 1200 Miles from Jerome and Fly Blackbird Fly Voices We Can't Unhear and this day in February, when many times, not all the time, but many times when they tell our story, you get the Jeffersons and you get Urkel and you get uh, Good Times, uh, Easy Credit, uh, Ripoffs, Good Times. That's not a song you would have heard emanating from our voice. Right. And it's so important that we tell our stories in our voice. Right. You know, I, I again, I go back to something I said earlier. We're watching a dynamic play out in the city of Indianapolis. And I don't think it's by coincidence that Artie um, and, and Onyx Fest is situated there as impact change agents in Indianapolis. There's an issue in the community with crime right now. And I, I, I view all of these works as in your own way, trying to get dialogue started to talk about pain, bottled up tension, ACEs, and all these things to bring it to a platform where, or can we understand one another? Can we say time out, everybody? Let's understand one another. Have there been efforts, and, and Charla, I know that you've worked a lot with youth and, and you too, Vernon, have, have any of you gone to the communities where a lot of things are going on that are rampant going on right now and, and gotten some of these community folk, young community folk, to release their tension, to release their frustration on the stage? Charlie, I want you to elaborate that. But before that, I just want to chime in on the context of the question. Um, uh, I, I would not uh, want people to perceive that Black theater is to, to remedy ills. There are so many things to celebrate among us, Clarence. Right. Beautiful things, stories untold. So before Charlie even answers that, I just want to say uh, uh, pre preempt that with the fact that that's one aspect to tell our pain and to deal right. with those that are problematic, as in all communities. But there are great stories and glorious things that we're gonna um, uh, that are in abundance that never get told and that need to be a part of that diaspora, Charlie. But if, but if I and could that's push what back. But if, but if I could push back just, just, just real quickly, you mentioned Urkel, Good Times. You, you mentioned all these shows that just really, in some respects, show the buffoonery of African-Americans and the frustration in the community. They're not telling our story. So we need a platform. That's my point. That's what I'm this saying. This is a platform. That's what Unexpressed is. It's a chance yes. for us to tell our stories. Right. Because even though my play deals with this family and their problems, a big crux of the play is um, hearing the mother say, uh, real black men take care of their families and hearing the father tell um, the boyfriend, black men, um, we're, we're strong, we're powerful. We're not that person that they tried to convince the world that we were in the past. We are right. men of honor. We are fierce, proud people. Those lines come out in my play because it is necessary that we start uplifting and upholding and start giving these young people these positive images to put in their head, not just the pastoral foolery that they've seen on television. Right, okay. We have about four minutes left and if we can get a final reaction as we go around from everyone, but again, four minutes is our target. So uh, Jamel, if you'll start for us, please. 
Um, just responding to this question. Uh, yeah, well, just as a final. Uh, oh, just uh, a final. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah. So I, I guess I can tie it into the end of that question. For me, yes, um, this festival is an opportunity for us to write plays and to, to experiment with stories that we want to be told that we want to see, perhaps, and merely in celebrating the stories that we want to be told, it's uplifting to our communities, I think. Okay. And uh, Janice, if you will. Um, I just think that um, we have all done a, um, an amazing job of just telling these different stories, these diverse stories, because, you know, everything that we tell, like Vernon said, it's not rooted in trauma. Um, we don't have, um, you know, everything isn't uh, a woe is me, you know, up from, you know, this the streets kind of thing. So we all are telling these, um, I think, very important stories where we're opening a dialogue. We want to talk about the things that African-Americans haven't typically talked about as therapy and, and how to, to to reduce trauma from, from our childhoods that we carry into relationships um, that we get, you know, as adults and how to kind of remedy those things. So Onyxess has given us an opportunity just to kind of tell these stories and all of these um, in so many different ways. And so this platform is so unique in that um, we get to do that um, to people, hopefully, who will come out and hear what we have to say, um, because we're doing it for our community. Mm -hmm. I will try to say uh, Latrice, uh who had to leave for a moment did uh, chime in to say that she thinks that Onyx Fest provides such a platform for this healthy dialogue and, and, uh, and good example role-playing. And also there is an entity, NAP Storytellers, that will go outside of acting and gives others a space to tell their stories. And she really wants to stress, she wants the audience to relax, relate and release. And this can only happen if cast and audience listen. And uh, she highly recommends the audience members have their therapies or self-care regimen on deck because there are multiple traumas addressed that might be triggering. Um, we'll continue with Vernon. Uh, if you would like to have the final, final remarks to wrap up. Oh, I'm sorry, Charlotte, and then Vernon. Oh, I was Charlotte. just gonna say, not to be a spoiler alert, but um, because I am who I am, and I believe in faith and family, uh, my play does end on the positive note that it is the love of this family for each other and the way that they support and encourage each other that takes this family out of what could have been everything rooted in trauma and uplifts them to another level. And Vernon, final words. You know, I think that um, one of the wonders of Black Theater is that uh, when you have people who are really committed to it and compassionate with it, uh, you're going to get the gamut of stories. I remember um, a great Black actor, Ossie Davis, saying that it wasn't just that Blacks uh, resented Amos and Andy and Bueller, but that there wasn't balance on television. If there could have been stories that told the funny people and the smart people, the beautiful people and the plain, hardworking, industrious people, you see that kind of balance in majority white theater, movies, television, you, but you tend to see people want to bend towards stereotypes when it comes to us. These five plays will not bend to stereotypes. So come out to see Onyx Fest and enjoy. And on that note, I'm going to say amen. Uh, <laughs> I will also say that uh, I enjoyed watching TCM the other week. They did a whole feature on Paul Robeson, and he brought so much during his era uh, to stage and screen and, of course, was an activist as well. Uh, but in your own right, you, you all are sending a message loud and clear. And I just want to thank 
uh, Vernon Williams, who along with our guests coming, uh, for coming on tonight. Uh, Vernon as Director of Arty, Africana Repertory Theater of Indiana, University of Purdue University, Indianapolis IUPUI. Um, we just wanna thank him for bringing all of these individuals on tonight who will soon be showcasing their craft during this year's Onyx Fest 2021 productions, which run October 7th through October 17th. Now, if you want more information on this, how to get tickets, where to go, uh, the schedule, the lineup, all of that, go to onyxfest.com, O-N-Y-X fest.com. Vernon? Thanks for allowing us to share with you um, what's going on with Onyx Fest this year. And we certainly uh, want to encourage people to donate to your station because public broadcasting is and uh, support for WFHP comes from listeners like you, as Vernon just said, and Community Voices for Health in Monroe County, who invite you to participate in your voices, our future, transforming community health decision-making via Zoom on Thursday, October the 14th from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. And this will be an evening of discussion and deliberation about health issues, ideas, and solutions among community members and decision-makers in Monroe County. Now, registration information is available through eventbrite.com by searching for Community Voices Monroe County. And Bring It On has an open policy submission, open submission policy rather. So if you have an idea for this program, let's hear it. Send an email to our volunteer staff. The address is bringingon at wfhb.org. And we wanna make sure we share everything and anything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. The email address once again is bringingon at wfhb.org. And our show's executive producer is yours truly, Clarence Boone. Our assistant producer is William Hosea. Our consultant in the BFHB News Department director is Kate Young. Our program engineer is Chantal LaFontaine. And our original theme music was created by Jamil Effiam with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. And Vernon Williams. <laughs> <laughs> See, in, in playwriting, there's the thing called the cue. You got to take your cue and you got to deliver your line. <laughs> But nevertheless, I've known Vernon for years. I could take that liberty to make that comment. Otherwise, I wouldn't. But be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB. You've been listening to Bring It On a volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Bring It On is your forum for open dialogue on the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American community in South Central Indiana and beyond. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Bring It On staff. The email address is bringit at wfhb.org. That's bringit at wfhb.org.